Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1997 and the little film that's about to open is going to break some box office records. It's got action, adventure, a lot of stuff at sea and an ending on a bit of wreckage in the ocean. That's right, Titanic comes out in 1997. And on the same weekend, at least in America, a little film called Tomorrow Never Dies. That was a strange intro, but I wanted to try something different and maybe makes you laugh. And mission accomplished! I am Natalie Bohensky and welcome to Raven Bond, where we are going through a retrospective of the Bond films. And with me, as always, to do what we always do when we get together, which is handcuff ourselves to each other and ride a motorbike around Ho Chi Minh City. It's Stuart Late! Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. It's very hard. You know, I've dislocated my shoulder about five times trying to do that. It's very dangerous. Look, I'm just disappointed that with the pandemic, we can't go anywhere and do the whole handcuffed bike riding trick. It's been very... Absolutely, yeah. It's really, uh, you know, limited our routine. Yeah. <laughs> We've had to do all this podcasting instead yeah. when trick bike riding is really what we were known for. Absolutely. Now I've just got an image of you and me in like clown costumes doing like <laughs> standing on each other's shoulders while pedaling BMXs and I'm um, quite enjoying that idea. Uh, so yes, this is Pierce Brosnan's second Bond film and I was trying to make a joke with my intro there. Did you did you like it? Did you I, like did, pick, I did pick up on the reference there, yes. Very well did, done. Yeah? Did you do that? Because <laughs> I had totally forgotten that this came out the same weekend or the same day as titanic in america anyway they were very close they were all in december for the rest of the world but yes it was it was the same day in america so it was not number one at the box office but i mean like that must have come as such a shock i mean when you think about it titanic is such a weird film to be like the biggest film of all time oh don't be silly Stu. it's such a biggest film film of all time But, I mean, if you're if you're the broccolis, if you're if you're Eon Productions, you're thinking to yourself, okay, so it's our film, Pierce Brosnan's second Bond film after his like critically and publicly acclaimed debut. He's got three hundred and fifty million dollar yeah. Box you know, you're thinking story. to yourself, oh, you know, we've got Pierce Brosnan, the Bond, everyone loves it, and we're up against like some period drama about the sinking of the Titanic. Like, <laughs> I think we'll be okay. Well- <laughs> I didn't realise they actually filmed a part of one of the stunts. I think they did a sea landing or something like that. They actually filmed it in the tank that was built for for, for Titanic. Oh, wow. Um, in, in Baja, in California. So, obviously, there was a bit of crossover. But, <laughs> well, yeah. I love the Titanic film for so long, and it did. It, it filmed for it a did. very long time. Yeah, but I love the Titanic film for so long that the Bond film could come in in the wake of it and just yeah. sort of pick up on one of its sets. Pick up a scene, film something there, get out again. That's, yes. that's the Bond films, man. Lean and mean. Get in, get in, get out. Get what you need. <laughs> Do a halo jump in, yeah, out, exactly. Gone. i got to say, Stu, I had a barrel of fun watching this film. I enjoyed this film a lot more than I was expecting to. The thing about the Brosnan era is that we all know that Goldeneye is the good one. But, but then right. the, the three other films, they kind of merge together into this one mediocre melange. It's not fair, is it it's really? It's not fair to this film, I think. I and I, I think maybe I might be like reappraising the, the latter half of the Brosnan era, but but definitely with this film, I liked it a lot more than I was expecting. That's not to say that I didn't have <laughs> problems with it, but 
it definitely it was a fun movie and it was it was up and down 100% from start to finish a Bond film yeah it knew what it was yeah absolutely it was hitting all those notes that's right and it had all of the characters you want and then it had this sort of really strong romance aspect to it with Bond Mm. and his ex-girlfriend Paris Carver who like it or not with the casting of Terry Hatcher you know (laughs) Well, apparently they auditioned Monica Bellucci for the role. And Monica and they, Bellucci in 1997 would have been perfect casting for this sort of role. Well, yeah, that's that's her at her, I think, pre-Matrix for sure. Yeah. Um, but, of course, she goes on to be, you know, famously the, oh, my God, she's like a 50-year-old Bond girl in Spectre. Well, we and can, we can definitely like, talk about that. It's Monica Bellucci. She has, she's, she has five minutes of screen time. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And also she's one of those people who does, like, they don't age anymore in Hollywood. It's not a number anymore. <laughs> you know, Daniel Craig is 50. Yeah. We don't go on about him. Well, we do. But other people. <laughs> <laughs> we we um, do a, a confusingly large amount. <laughs> but there's a real tenderness with Pierce Brosnan's bond in this film when it comes to Terry Hatcher, and then when it comes to Michelle Yeoh. And can we just bow down to Michelle Yeoh for a moment? Oh, like Michelle, I mean, Michelle Yeoh is amazing. She's so phenomenal in this movie. She just makes the movie. She's insanely good. Her character is probably not as fleshed out as maybe it could have been, but also she's kind of the Chinese Bond. She works alone. She banters a little bit. Oh, uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like Triple X before her, like like she's definitely the, the female foreign spy that is more than a match for Bond. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's very, very good. I had a bucket of fun. And, and can I just say, probably <laughs> most of that is due to Jonathan Price. That he man. He's having such a good time in this movie. <laughs> he, oh, look, we'll get into it. But the way he type. He's a media baron, but for some reason he's also acting as the editor and yeah. headline, you know. He's, yeah, he's a sub. He's that's, a sub. That's what I love. He's a sub he's, editor. He's writing the headlines. He's doing the design and he's doing the fact checking as well. And, and, and you know what? Like, like the, the second headline was punchier, Natalie. I, I will admit. <laughs> that's right. Murdered just has a lot more. Like you see, exactly. You know, he's, he's sitting there, he's making notes, and I'm like, you know what? That's a, that's the right call. You but know, for those who don't know, who like, haven't been following us, both both Natalie and I have a background in the media, and um, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, look, you know, he's making the right calls. I mean, I believe it. I'm just going to so- see if I can do, like, some audio comedy here. I've got my keyboard here, which I have not right. disconnected from my from my computer, so I just could disconnect the whole recording. <laughs> so he has this mini keyboard in his hand that he's constantly, you know, tapping with. He's got multi-screens well, of all different he is, he is. Bashing random keys, Natalie, is what he's doing. It is the he's stupid. doing this. He's like, I'm writing the headline today. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could not be any clearer that he is just mashing random keys. He, Sorry. he really. Are you there? No, 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 no still here. Hello. <laughs> so <laughs> basically what I said would happen happened, and I All accidentally right. fired off YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was trying to attempt some audio comedy and I (laughs) misfired everything on my computer. Well, look, what what you did then can't be any worse than his uh, keyboard acting. That has to be the worst keyboard acting I've ever seen in my life. The worst or the best, you? Well, I mean, both both at the same time, which is very indicative of this movie. (laughs) He's just... So much fun. I, yeah, I, he is. I don't know if it's a maturity or a, the the Daniel Craig era being, you know, much more sombre, 
But this kind of scratched an itch for that over-the-top villain. Definitely. That I didn't realise I had been missing because you had the Living Daylights villains were a bit weak, but they weren't comedy villains. They were Brad Whitaker, I suppose, was. Licence to Kill, you had an incredible villain with Robert Darby. Goldeneye, you have Sean Bean. Yeah, who who is not a comedy villain. He's a very he's played very straight. That's what I mean. So uh, you've got yeah. like a really couple of really serious villains, and then all of a sudden you have <sighs> Let the mayhem begin. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not quite a fish man, but it's very close. <laughs> a fish man from um, Spy Who Loved Me. Oh right, yes, Stromberg. Well, he's more um, demonstrative than Stromberg. Yes, Stromberg absolutely. Is still very yes. Hello, I would like to kill everyone. But yeah, Elliot Carver does have a bit of a Roger Moore villain. Oh yeah, this is a to... Roger Moore Bond film, is what this is. This with... is a very Roger Moore style Bond film. With one caveat. Yeah. Has a lot of machine guns. That's true. <laughs> that end fight on the stealth boat. <laughs> so <laughs> many machine guns. Double machine guns and and Pierce is just like swirling them around like in a zero. And then one will fail and they throw it away and pick up another from a dead guy. <laughs> just i loved everything about it so i think we should get into our one minute challenge yes i went first last week so if you want to if you want to i mean you you obviously are very excited about this movie so i think you should only it's only right that you should take the take the leap in typical fashion i have just finished watching it as we record I watched it several days ago. You have just finished watching it. So I'm I'm completely tickled by it. The shine may come off at it. Look, it's not a perfect movie. It's a great Bond movie. It's just a silly, fun Bond movie. It is. You know. You know what? Like, like it's not the best movie in the world, and it's not even the best Bond movie. But it is. It is straight up and down a James Bond movie. It does what it says on the tin. It is. It is everything you expect from a James Bond movie. And there's really fun stuff in here. So anyway, I'll get on to my minute challenge and we'll see if we can uh, pick some of this stuff out for conversation. So the first thing I had was stealth boat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I just love that it's a stealth boat. It It sure is, Natalie. Can't see it. It just sounds so silly, but it's what it is. How do you say a stealth boat? Yeah, exactly. When they say it, I always think of The Simpsons and Nightboat. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you always find a canal or an <laughs> Look, estuary. over there, a canal. They always find a canal. <laughs> uh, but exactly. I think maybe a stealth craft could have sounded cooler, but <laughs> obviously nobody looked at that. This is the thing. On screen, yeah. it is referred to as a stealth boat. And it's I'm like, okay. Boat. Like somebody actually says on one of the, I think the British <laughs> ships near the end is like, are they serious? A stealth boat? A it's like they almost comment on it themselves. <laughs> like, this is very silly. I wrote, oh, how beautiful 1997 was. Oh, that was a year. Oh. This film came out, and Titanic, I guess, at the end of my year 12 year. So, again, oh, I'm giving course, my age yeah. away. But that was my time to shine, Stu. It was a, yeah. a beautiful, promising time where we had the Spice Girls and we had – I think it was just as the Bill Clinton impeachment was happening and we had so many <laughs> so many Monica Lewinsky jokes that now of course we look back and feel a little bit ashamed about because sure. of the, you know power imbalance and the demonization of a young woman working in as an intern and Absolutely. Monica Lewinsky is just so funny on Twitter. So there's a lot that we regret about that, but also <laughs> it was before 9/11. It was a magical time where I because I'm obviously clearly Stu incredibly cool 
And I don't know what you did for your schoolies, which is, of course, the the great pilgrimage that Queensland students tend to make to the Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast at the end of their sure. academic life. Uh, a week-long party at the end of uh, school. Yes, and even back in my day, back in my day, it was getting safer. Like it, there was a lot of work being done to stop it being the crazy, yeah. debauched mess that it had been in the 80s and earlier in the 90s. But I think compared to these days where it's so sanitised that it's probably even a bit boring. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Just, hey, kids, maybe stay home and spend your money <laughs> elsewhere. Um, get rat-assed in a, in a less responsible fashion. Um, no, that's that's irresponsible of me to say that. Don't don't listen to me, kids. But I'm not a drinker. So I had been dumped by friends who decided to go to Lord Howe Island or something. It was like three oh, of them wow. decided to go up there and they didn't tell me. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I guess, okay, well, not going on schoolies then. And I really didn't care because I'm not a drinker and I wasn't then. And the idea of spending a week paying a bit of money to sit around while people got lotto and then slept all day and just didn't really appeal to me and then I got my first job which was Stu working as a checkout chick at Coles and I had my training in schoolies week and so I went you know what I'm fine with that I'm going to go do my training and then I'm going to go home and we had one room at my house that was air conditioned and so I went to the blockbuster video up the road actually I think it might have been a video easy still at that point and I hired Red Dwarf videos Blackadder videos, sure. Doug Anthony All-Stars videos, mm-hmm. and the Late Show videos, and I just sat in the air-conditioned room drinking Slopies and watching comedy because I'm a massive <laughs> nerd. Yeah. Well, look, and it sounds like it sounds like you spent your time well. I feel like I made good decisions. Yeah, absolutely. In my schoolies week. <laughs> what did you do for your schoolies? Because it would have been a few years later because I am obviously so much older than you. <laughs> um, yeah, so much older. I, I graduated in the futuristic year 2000, and we went. Uh, we instead of going to the Gold Coast, everyone goes to the Gold Coast. We went. We went the other direction and went to the Sunshine Coast ah. and had a week up there, and it was very, very good. Did you go to Noosa? Uh, I think we did actually go to Noosa. I'm trying to think where it was. I think it was Nooseville, actually. It was in the the hinterland area. I can never remember if that's posher or not as posh. I can't remember either, but I, I do know that um, there were several other schoolies units and we all linked up one night for a big big party and it was great it was actually <laughs> genuinely genuinely a very good week <laughs> that's nice that's yeah nice. it was very good at least it wasn't caloundra <laughs> that's true yeah we did just, didn't, didn't hit up caloundra <laughs> it's just such a horrible word on the ear the way that we say caloundra <laughs> especially when people who go to caloundra say caloundra caloundra <laughs> Anyway, enough about our schoolies year. My point is that I would have gone to see this film in the cinema just after I graduated from high school. And the thing was is that, you know, my parents who love to tell me, particularly my dad, bless him, love him to death. He only wanted the best for me. He still does. (laughs) But he he would be like, come on, Natalie, get a job, do this, study. And I was like, well, I finished year 12. I got good marks. I've got a job. I'm starting work. I've applied for uni. It's my summer vacation after I finished year 12. Stuff you, going to watch TV comedy all day. You cannot do anything (laughs) about it. Whoop, whoop. So they were exciting times. And so I would have just, because I had my license too by then, so I was just taking myself off of my little beep, beep arena. Absolutely. I just, maybe that's... Everything changes, doesn't it? It's it's crazy. And then all of a sudden... And all of a sudden there's a global pandemic and... um, (sighs) (laughs) I mean, that was was a pretty big jump we just made, but yes. (laughs) But it doesn't feel that long and... And then you read about people who are now famous and on YouTube and they were or famous actors who were born in 97 or later and it makes me sad. And 
<laughs> very sad. Um, but that's life, I guess. That's life. So um, having had a big digression for the start of my one-minute challenge, pretty much spending 20 seconds on that, I then said Terry Hatcher because I loved Terry Hatcher in the 90s because she was Lois Lane, Stu. I was going to say, well, so I did too, and for the same reason, because, of course, she was Lois Lane on the, the adventures of the Lois new. and Clark. Did you watch that show? Absolutely. Oh, it was, that's it was so a good to hear. This, well, this is the thing. It's one of those amazing shows that had such an incredible crossover appeal because it was a super, it was a superhero show, but also they they included all this romance stuff as well. It, it was a screwball comedy, kind yeah. of until Friday, and it was deliberately made to appeal to women. Yes, exactly. But I picked it up because it was Superman, because it was a superhero show. And I was like, well, obviously, I'm going to watch a superhero show. So so I watched it, and it was right. very good. I loved it. And obviously, you know, had a massive crush on Terry Hatcher as a, as a teen. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, of course I did. Well, this, this but, is the time you know. when she had been she had been voted the sexiest woman alive, like in sure. 95 or 96. And there was this picture of her draped in the Superman cape, like yes. nude. Uh, I know exactly the picture that you are talking about, yes. <laughs> did you have it on your bedroom wall? Uh, I did not have it on my bedroom wall, but I'm well I'm well aware of that picture. <laughs> but apparently that was the most, because we're talking about the, you know, nascent days of the internet. And 97, I think, was when we first got the internet at home. Um, right. Because, of course, you had one computer yes. for the whole family. <laughs> and it was in the living room. Yep. And everyone took a turn. And, of course, you couldn't be on the phone while you're on yes, the computer. Exactly. If someone made a phone call, it would kick you off the internet. It would kick you off. So that was how you did the internet. You could dial up and get online and have a look and at And whenever you were on, your, your parents or your, your dad kept uh, yelling out <laughs> down the corridor to be careful not to get any viruses. <laughs> Is that, that just me? Or? Have you updated the Norton? <laughs> oh, no. Dad, Dad didn't have that level of uh, of detail. He was he was always just like, don't you get any viruses? <laughs> I don't know what they are. don't know how you get them. <laughs> he'd, he'd read an article that said you could get viruses on the internet. <laughs> but, yeah, so apparently that, was, that photo of Terry Hatcher was, like, the most uploaded, shared, emailed, I guess, at the time, picture on the internet. It was everywhere. Sure. So um, she was the Golden Girl. And then she did Lois and Clark, which finished, and she did this film. And then she kind of faded away until Desperate Housewives. Desperate Housewives, yeah, absolutely. And she famously, I think, won a Golden Globe or an Emmy for that show and then and talked in her speech about getting a second chance and thought that, you know, she'd had her chance at stardom, had that and then nothing else, but then she got the second wind. But then apparently it all came out that they all hated each other on set and she was a bitch and everyone else was a bitch. And, yeah. You know, because Hollywood loves those stories of a whole bunch of women working together and hating each other. That's it, exactly, yes. You know, it's just like the show. Um <laughs> <laughs> so how much truth there was to it, who knows? But she hasn't really had much of a career no, since not, then. No, not a lot of – she hasn't done a lot of work. And What, what, what I, has she been up to? I'm just looking up now. You look it up, but what it says on the James Bond research Wikipedia page <laughs> is that she kind of came to regret playing this role. And I was reading that she and Jonathan Price weren't particularly happy with their roles going into filming and they had rescripting done. But I think she does quite a lot with the – the small amount of screen time that she has. She's uh, okay. Yep. She's relatively convincing. The problem is she's American. And I think the idea that Bond would have a great, a grand passion for Some an American, American. Is, is never. <laughs> I do sound like I'm being horrible to Americans, but if you think about the American Bond girls, they don't tend to be as, I don't know, 
Well, that's true. I mean, Maybe you know, there's... if it had been Monica Bellucci, it would have been more believable that Bond would have had this passionate affair with a well, beautiful Pussy French American. No, she's she's English. Yeah, she's English. I just had a sudden. Uh, I guess because she's she's got a bit of that transatlantic accent going yes, on. Yes, exactly. But, um, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think. There's there's been a couple of American Bond girls, including uh, Pam Bouvier uh, as an American Bond girl, and she did and quite well. Like, yeah, and very she's happy great. With her. But as I, I think I said in my License to Kill recap, that she does well because normally we're used to American girls being either a little bit they stand out either for being a little bit bland, like Stacey Sutton in A View to a Kill, or... Who? Who, who are you? <laughs> I, I don't understand who you're talking about there. Look, it was a very minor part. She just kind of flitted in and out. It's not your <laughs> fault if you missed her. But then, of course, then you've got, like, your Christmas Joneses, who's a bit... Yes. Who we'll OTT, see next week. <laughs> who we'll see next week. And they're a bit OTT. So, yeah, there's there's a definite vibe with American Bond girls. Well, I just, I just, I'm thinking, as you say that, I just realised that other than Goldeneye, like, it's all American Bond girls for the Brosnans. Oh, as like the good Bond girls. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the good Bond girls. Because it's Sophie Marceau, who's French, and then Miranda Frost, Rosamund Pike, who's English. Mm. So, yeah, the European women are the villains. And, yeah, maybe it was like a push more into the American market where they wanted to have, like, Americans as the good good time gals. But then Michelle Yeoh is the main one in this, and she's Chinese. So, well, she's Hong Kong Chinese. She famously, I think, had to learn Mandarin for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, well, because she she comes from the Hong Kong uh, fight school, st- stunt school. Yeah, she's like Jackie Chan kind of films mm, and that sort absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And oh my God, don't they just do so much great freaking I don't know martial arts stuff? She's so good in they this. They do. And then Jonathan Price, <laughs> or Elliot Carver, I should say, <laughs> he throws down the moon. Like chop suey star, like wah wah wah, and I'm I'm I sound horrible doing it, but I'm literally just replicating what Jonathan Price does in the movie when she tries to like kick him, and then he just yeah. he takes the piss out of her. He's so rude. It's like, dude, racist much? I know, like <laughs> just sort of, it, it kind of clangs. Like, it's like oh boy, it really clangs now, but at the same time, it's in character for him because he's literally setting off the British and the Chinese against each other. For market dominance, like yes, exactly, like like he's he's the bad guy. So he's the bad you know, guy. Uh, Him doing some racist shit is in line with that. So, but it does sort of go, kind of, oh god, I forgot he did that. Anyway, back to my list. Well, speaking of Jonathan Price, uh, I said he's having way too much fun. <laughs> he basically just needs a moustache and a railway track. Oh yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he's just oh. And the puns, the puns when he talks about Bond, when it, they think Bond is, has, you know, shot him off the side of the stealth boat. It's like he's, he's currently making his way to the bottom of the South China Sea. <laughs> he's my new anchorman. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my shit. I totally forgot about that joke. There's just... <laughs> Oh. He, he looks so pleased with himself as well. That, that's what I love. He's like, oh, I just thought of this. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, there's so many news jokes. And I think, like, we as the as the journo types, I think we have to defend this movie because this is, you know, the media bond movie. The, do, do we? <laughs> yes, we do, Stu. We do. Well, let me finish my list because it sounds like you've got criticisms. Oh, and uh, I need to keep my positivity vibe up, okay? Okay. It sounded really aggressive. <laughs> all right, Stu, I don't need you bringing me down right now, all right? Um, yes, I wrote uh, Michelle Yo kicks 50 types of buttocks. Mr. Stamper. I love that he's Mr. Stamper the Mr. whole way Stamper. through. Anyway, there's there's a whole bunch of fun stuff with, with Mr. Stamper. Not Is least he of the best? I think he might be the best giant blonde Russian henchman. He's German. 
but uh, yes, German, take... German rather. Yeah, yeah. The, the the giant blonde German. He's a Bond villain type, and I it's, think he might be the best one. It's funny that you should say that because I was just reading in my research about when he auditioned that he was given twenty seconds to. This is uh, Gotts Otto. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maybe yeah. Gotts Otto was called in for casting. He was given twenty seconds to introduce himself. His hair had recently been cropped short for a TV role. He did it in five, saying, I'm big, I'm bad, and I'm German. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yep, he got he it is in all one. of those things. That's it. And everyone went, yeah, yeah, actually, that's, uh, yeah, he's huge. But he's, he's also, he's also, like, actually very magnetic as a screen presence. Like, like he's quite compelling. I, I, I like, I, I like, I like what he's doing. He has this kind of stare. Yeah. And he, um. When they're threatening Bond and uh, Wei Ling, Michelle Yeoh's character, with the chakra torture. So Paris Carver is killed by Dr. Kaufman. We'll get to the plot in a minute, but Mm. Dr. Kaufman is this, like, comedy bad guy German. Can I I take a moment to just talk about that scene? Because (laughs) that scene is my favourite scene in the entire movie. (laughs) Like, I love that scene so much. Just, just the two two craftsmen coming together, like having having a chat. It's the weirdest scene because on the one hand you've got Pierce Brosnan actually showing some grief and mm. heartache because he loved Paris once, maybe even twice. But um, <laughs> sorry, that's, that, was that was too obvious. That was too obvious. Um, but he he sees her dead and he actually is like moans of like, uh, Paris, and he's kind of holding her and he's quite distraught and knows that it's totally his fault. Um, but, yes. <laughs> but then the Kaufman guy is like the comedy relief psychiatrist. Well, he isn't, he isn't though. Like, like what, I, what I really like is that they, they really ride the line between that being a genuinely funny scene but yes. also with genuine menace underneath it like he's not playing it cartoonishly broad but he's playing it as if he's this eccentric german man who is like yes and and now i now i will have to kill you as well and i'm very good at this and you know i just love it i absolutely love it it's so good and and the 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 capstone to it all where he's like oh i'm just doing a job and he's like so am i yes it's a brutal murder at the end he just is like bang in the head yeah but what I love about it is that he, uh, they're trying to, because of course the the reason why it's given more of a comedy edge, I guess, is because Bond has parked his car, the BMW that <laughs> you know drives itself, or well, it's remote control, and it's got super strong windows, doors, everything, and so these goons are trying to break into the car to retrieve the encoder device. It's a very Batmobile uh, situation where the the goons are trying to get into the Batmobile and can't get in. Of course, later on, the windshields do get broken, so it doesn't quite explain that. But anyway, so they're trying to break into this car and it keeps cutting back from the Bond and Kaufman scene to the car, these goons with baseball bats and then guns and everything. (laughs) So that's kind of the comedy thing. And then all of a sudden you've got Stamper calling Kaufman going, they can't get into the car. You're going yes. to have to tell Bond to tell you how to open the car. And so Kaufman's like, you can't be serious. And then he's like, I'm really sorry about this, but you're going to have to – I don't know what to say. I feel I, like an idiot. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> I, just, I laughed and laughed. It's so good. It's so, so funny, and it walks the line, but I think it does it really well. Like it's, yeah, exactly. Maybe that's just my sense of humour that I found that very funny. So then when Stamper later on is talking about uh, chakra torture and that he was a, a protege of the late Dr. Kaufman, <laughs> and then you 
see Stampa just looking at Bond going, he was like a father to me. <laughs> it's like this really intense stare. And Bond's <laughs> like, huh, interesting role model. And then uh, he says, Dr. Kaufman, he's specialized in keeping the subject alive as long as possible. And uh, Dr. Kaufman's record was 52 hours. And Stampa says, I hope to break it. (laughs) (laughs) He has this lovely, um, I don't know, charming villainy, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, well, he he like like when he says, "I hope to break it," and like it's a threat, but also he does hope to break the record. (laughs) You might remember him from um, he is in uh, or was in Downfall. Oh, was he? Yeah, I don't know if he's in the famous downfall scene, of course, the the one that's been parodied, uh, I think, 70 million times on the internet. Yes. Um, he probably is. But he was also Stu in Iron Sky. Oh, well, of course he was. He yes. was Moon Nazi <laughs> Officer Adler. Sure, absolutely. He infiltrates the US and plots to become Fuhrer of the Moon Nazi Colony. <laughs> I had forgotten that that was him. <laughs> But yes, he's 1.98 meters tall, which is six foot six in the old money. Yes. Uh, so yeah, big guy, big guy. Big blonde German man. So, oh yes, the the missile and the drill. I love big crazy machines, oh, yes. particularly yeah. that drill. Da, 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 da sinking ships and all that sort of stuff. And then finally I ended, uh, no, wait, I wrote up here on the side, no internet. Yes. <laughs> which becomes very I, obvious. Yeah, I also had that note. This movie is ignoring the existence of the internet, which to be fair was still probably in its consumer infancy. That's true. But it, it is funny to see a, a movie about a megalomaniacal media baron who wants to take over the world. And he's talking about radio. <laughs> Books. <laughs> Books. <laughs> Yeah, magazines. Yes, when he's talking about uh, hold, stop the presses. That's right. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> stop the presses, everybody. It looks like there's something escalating in the South China Sea, and he doesn't tell them what it is. He just goes, "I want everything. I want TV, radio, books, films." I'm like, <laughs> how are you going to get a film out? In a couple of days. It's, it's just silly. Are you putting out newsreels? Like, what's it's clearly like the writer going, you know, oh, that's what media is, like just name yeah. every kind of genre. <laughs> he looked up media in the dictionary and just wrote down all the different categories. And the thing is now, if you had that scene now, it would be so much more convincing because you would be able to say things like, I need live streaming, I need yeah. um, Twitter feeds, I need text message, um, I need Facebook messenger posts, I need, what else do we have in our strange modern day? <laughs> I need full social media coverage. Yeah, I need text alerts. I need, you know, I need email blasts. I need, you know. Yeah. It's... And, and there, would, there would be a significant part of the plot that was involved with, like, deep fakes. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to tackle that because the, the Bond movies haven't really acknowledged that social media is a thing in the way that, like, Sherlock, the um, Stephen Moffat Sherlock, just totally leaned into social media mm. and, and made it a massive part of, of that show. The Bond movies have just kind of ignored that. <laughs> the internet exists, but it's mostly email still and I guess live satellite something. Did you notice in Carver's uh, meeting with all of his, I guess, division heads, just randos on screens? His, his Zoom meeting. Zoom meeting, yes, yes. I mean, because the thing is, at the time, that would have been seen as like insanely futuristic, that he has a giant yes. screen that shows everyone all at once. Yes. And it's like, so he, he's Zooming. He's Zooming everyone. Okay. He's Zooming. Somebody's got their cat in the background. <laughs> Somebody else is accidentally on mute. 
Did you notice one of the guys was Michael G. Wilson, the producer? Oh, no, I didn't. I'm pretty sure the guy who, you know how he says to one of them, like, how are we doing in America? Tell the president if he doesn't sign my bill allowing limitless internet use or whatever it was. Tell him I've got a video of him with the cheerleader that I'll release. And the guy goes, inspired, sir. Inspired. No, it's just regular old blackmail. It's not that inspired. Nowadays, of course, they'd have the P-tape. Exactly. (laughs) Well, this is the thing, because this is coming out in 97, and I think, you know, Bill Clinton was known already as a bit of a pants man. So (laughs) that's a commentary on current affairs. And then the other thing that I had at the end of my list was nice Robert Maxwell reference. And I think that's something that people kind of assume that Elliot Carver is Rupert Murdoch, but he's actually much more based on Robert Maxwell, who was the, he was a big media baron, British media baron, who died in mysterious circumstances on his yacht. Just a few parallels there. Yeah, on his yacht. And and the way Judy Dench says it's believed he committed suicide, that's the kind of, they never worked out what happened with Robert Maxwell. They think it was either accident or suicide. They think he might have been taking a pee off the side of the boat and fallen in and drowned. But of course... <laughs> talk about history main you know history is never in the past it's always in the present robert maxwell's youngest daughter you might know as Ghislaine maxwell aka offsider oh and right-hand woman of jeffrey epstein oh my god notorious i had never made that connection <laughs> so you know it's all with us Stu. it's all yeah with us. it's coming back around doesn't it? it just keeps coming around and and the thing is is that i was just listening to a podcast today i think about the whole um have you heard of this like save the children or save our children nonsense that's going around it's like oh, a, yeah, it's, Q, it's QAnon. it's QAnon. yeah it's like an offset of QAnon where they're trying to hide their crazy crazy conspiracy theories by disguising them as no 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 we're just against child sex trafficking mm, yeah. and human trafficking and pedophilia and so they just believe that everyone is a pedophile the great tragedy of it all is that like there is a high profile celebrity sex ring and they found it yeah well yeah and, you know and the, the 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 ringleaders are in jail and dead yeah and look a lot later than should have happened yes. because Money buys you shit, particularly in America, it seems, but probably everywhere. So it's just weird that there's like an actual case that's legit messed up, Mm. but they're now hanging that. They're using that to kind of say, oh, no, 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 anyone who's in power or politics is a pedophile. It's almost like you have to become one. You know, you get elected and then, all right, off you go then. This is probably not a sensible thing to be discussing, but I'm I'm talking about it from the, I'm talking about it in an absurd way because the only way I can process it because it's so absurd. You're talking about the conspiracy theories. Yeah, the and conspiracy They are insane. Like, like it, it, it is full on insane conspiracy theories. I've seen them um, compared quite rightly to like the satanic panic in yes. the 1980s, which, which was very similar. It was a very, yeah. you know, satanic cults uh, kidnapping children and sacrificing them to the devil yeah in the sense uh, that it just wasn't a thing it yeah was not a thing. It, it was absolutely not a thing it, just, it was it was completely <laughs> confected except in that case again like the media kind of latched onto it as a sensational story and you can see the only thing that is stopping the media doing it this time is kind of the fact that there are so many people on social media who know exactly what QAnon is and what these things are and can point that out you know and you yeah. didn't have that before you had these newsrooms that were working completely blind Someone says to them, oh, yeah, I saw a satanic cult in the woods. They're like, well, that's, that's probably worth a story. Yeah, exactly. Well, just write it up now, and I'm sure proof will come up at some yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's one of those uh, things, even with even with the QAnon now, is there's a lot more articles kind of cropping up that I see of like, what is QAnon inside the conspiracy theory that's all over the internet? And it's like, I don't know. On the one hand, of course, 
you need to write about this stuff because it's stupid and yes. you know people are profoundly being sucked into profoundly stupid and people are being sucked into it but at the same time it's like does that give them more ammunition like look they're writing about us clearly we're <laughs> you know legitimate and you can't win against them like you literally can't win because you say are you saying you're against child sex trafficking and it's like well of course i mean of course i am against child sex well if you don't approve of child sex trafficking then you have to understand that there are other things that you might and it's like oh you cannot win with these people because if you debunk them and say, no, I don't think Tom Hanks and Bill Gates are responsible for spreading a vaccine <laughs> that's going to make you into a pedophile or whatever it is, you know, they're like, well, that's what they would say. It just goes around in circles. You can't argue. You can't argue yeah. with them, Stu. Yeah, it's it's tough. It, and it's always the way with conspiracy theorists that, that everything is part of the conspiracy. Everything's connected somehow and it's hard to break through. And the only thing you can do is keep trying. Well, speaking, you know, of 1997, <laughs> did the X-Files steer us wrong? You know, that was the I show. Think, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, it's it's weird to go back to that time and remember that there was like there was actually like a massive popular idea that the government was just keeping things from us. You couldn't exactly explain what those things were, but everyone just <laughs> sort of understood it as as read that. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, the government's definitely covering up stuff. And it's but, definitely well, aliens. It's definitely aliens. It's not I, just like you know dodgy contracts here and there, and you know due process not being followed in a number of cases, and. No, yeah. People getting appointed to things that other people might be qualified for. And looking the other way for large companies to, like, basically poison huge amounts of the country's water supply and things like that. That's right. That's right. It's like health staff and... You know, these things went on. And but see, it's very mundane. It's, it's, it's all actual, literal, genuine conspiracies that are very, very boring to talk about. Yeah, and, and people think everything's so much sexier than it is in government. Yeah. And I know of a lot of public servants. I just don't think they could be bothered. Like... <laughs> It's just a lot of like, really, I've got to now create and uh, cover. Oh, God. These, you know? these are the people who need like four months to draw up a, a working plan. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is about how people leak stuff. People talk. Yeah, they people... do. They do all the time. Yeah. I think they've done studies and worked out like if everyone at the rate which people leak, you know, something like Roswell or Aliens, it would have been like 40 years ago plus that someone yeah. would have spilled this. Well, I mean, like the, the, the ultimate capper came from this year to the whole X-Files thing, because, you know, back in the 90s, it was very, you know, oh, the, the government definitely knows about aliens. And then in 2020, the Pentagon just released a bunch of footage saying, <laughs> right. yeah, these are UFOs. We don't know what they are. Does Do you know what they are? <laughs> that happened. That happened in 2020. Yeah, only a few months ago. A few months ago, the Pentagon released videos of genuine, unidentified flying objects. They're like, yeah, we don't know what they are. Well, remember with Men in Black, which I think also came out in 97, the first Men in Black. I could be yes, wrong. Yeah, it did. It did indeed. But in remember fact, how... it finished above... I'm looking at my uh, list here. It finished above Bond in, in the top films of the highest grossing films of the year. I'm not surprised because it kind of does owe a bit of a debt of gratitude to Bond. Yeah, you know, it does in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It meant like the suits, the gadgets, the you know, there's a, there's definitely a a bit there. There's um, a Bond uh, in inspiration there, definitely. Yeah, and Will Smith's whole smooth, you know, he's clearly Will Smith, but the whole like I'm slick, sophisticated kind of thing. Mm. But the whole running joke of that is that you've got famous celebrities who are actually aliens, and that explains their weird yes. behaviour. And they've yeah. got like, you know, they're monitoring all the aliens on the Earth, and they've got pictures of you know Michael Jackson and. 
I don't know, other celebrities are in there. Like I suppose Elvis, you know, he he just won't stay down. Like he's an alien. He keeps popping up. That, well, no, that no, the, the, the joke, the joke which I love was that Elvis isn't dead. He just went home. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah he just went home. So, it, you know, and and of course that was all like, hee, 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 imagine if all our world leaders were secret aliens. Oh, that would be funny. And that's like, well, you've got Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and <laughs> These are ridiculous humans. And the idea that they're aliens is either like, ah, wouldn't be surprised. You know, if Donald Trump got up at the Republican convention and went, okay, everybody, I've got something to tell you. I'm actually from the planet Melnac. (laughs) Melmac? Melmac. It's me and Alf. In fact, my hair is made out of Alf. Um, Like, everyone would be like, ah. You know, well, I mean, it, it would be that surprise. Donald Trump makes a lot more sense when you think that he's like a skin suit that someone is wearing. Yeah, and just and, his and general physicality makes a lot more sense. He's like a Raxacorocophalopatorian, yes, too. Yes. You know, when they're having to like squeeze their big, hefty bodies into like a smaller. <laughs> that probably explains why Donald Trump farts a lot, too. Yeah, you heard absolutely. it. You heard it here first. Which he definitely does. He clearly does. He <laughs> farts all the time, that guy. Please join my Facebook group, Donald Trump Farts Anon. <laughs> oh, that made no sense. Anyway, that's a lengthy digression on conspiracy theories and how it relates to the Bond movies and Robert Maxwell and Elliot Carver, and it's time to go on to your list. But before we do, a quick recap of the plot. Right, yes. So a British ship is sunk in the South China Sea, mm-hmm. provoking tensions between the UK and China. And it's up to James Bond to uncover who was responsible. Was it indeed the Chinese or is it, in fact, Elliot Carver, multimillionaire media baron who's just about to launch a new satellite and a new international news network and conveniently profits off war ratings. And Bond teams up with a Chinese spy, Wei Lin, to do so. That's about the plot. In case people got to this point going, well, I don't know, still don't know what the movie's about, but they're just rabbiting on about conspiracy theories and Donald Trump farting. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, you know, you could be forgiven because, as I said, the the, the three latter uh, Brosnans do bleed together a little bit for people, I think. You're like, wait, wait, which one is this? Oh, the media guy. Okay, yeah, with uh, Michelle Yeoh. Okay. Yeah. The other thing about this year is, no, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. I was just trying to look up when Fox News uh, began broadcasting. Oh. And it just took me straight to Fox News. And I was like, no, I don't I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I want the Wikipedia page. <laughs> don't don't take me to that place. I'm just trying to see when it started broadcasting because I'm pretty – yeah, okay. So October 1996 is when wow, Fox News okay. – started broadcasting. So a year later, this film came out, which was talking about 24-hour news. And, of course, Judy Dench had referenced CNN, which was before Fox News, and Fox News came on board to kind of take advantage of the 24-hour news cycle and pivot it to a right-wing audience and really can be directly pinpointed as the cause of what we're going through today. (laughs) You could definitely pin a lot of what's happening today on Fox News specifically, yes. And it's so interesting to kind of put this film in that timeline and mm. just reevaluate because you've got the start of the death of traditional media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was in university in the late 90s, early 2000s, and even then, traditional media was dipping. You know, this yes, is. Yes, there, there was. There was. Yeah. This is pre Google, pre Facebook, pre everything, and still the internet was there and starting to cannibalize. Mm. advertising. And I remember being in uni and people saying, oh, it's. 
job losses are happening. Oh, it's very concerning. It's like you wouldn't believe the number of jobs compared to now. <laughs> you know, this is 20 yes. years ago. So we're talking about the start of the internet's rise and you've got this media baron of old media and it's just as Fox News and that 24-hour cycle is about to begin and it's Kaufman when the whole thing with that Kaufman scene with Paris Carver is that they're playing a news report about Paris Carver's death and how she's mm. found with a man with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah, and then it turns out it's a VHS tape. It's a VHS tape. <laughs> And Bond is like, oh, tomorrow's news today. And everyone's like, dude, it would have been a tweet. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it was now, it would have been shown, oh, look, here's this tweet that's going to be going up in five minutes. Bond would have been cancelled. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Mr. Bond. You've been cancelled. <laughs> it's time to cancel you. <laughs> Well, this is the other thing with that year. Uh, it turns out you're extremely problematic, Mr. Bond. <laughs> you're what we like to call a problematic favourite. <laughs> well, this is the other thing about 1997 is the year that Austin Powers came out. Oh, of course it is. And the whole point. Wow. So, so Aust- yeah. International Man of Mystery was this year. It was May 1997. I was about to say 2017. Oh, my God. And this, no, no. this came out late 97. That's right. So you have this, you know, and, and Austin Powers is now a 23-year-old film. But at the time, it was throwing back to 1967. And sure. a spy who gets frozen in the mid-60s and comes back in the 90s and has to learn how to not be a sexist pig. Yes. And now we would probably look at something like Austin Powers and go, there were some really bad depictions of women. There were some really negative stereotypes. There was some, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The jump again, yeah, Austin would now have to learn not to be problematic. (laughs) I'm tweeting, baby, yeah. (laughs) He'd have an OnlyFans account and uh, private Instagram story. (laughs) oh my goodness it's just i find it really interesting with this film in particular with all these things that were kind of happening in 97 and probably because it's of my own you know personal interest titanic and bill clinton and yeah there's there's so much happening austin powers and media i I don't know i just i guess i look back and go wow this is again it's history it's still with us Mm. so now that i've been philosophical Stu, i will stop being selfish (laughs) and hand over to you for your one minute challenge that's quite all right it was very it was very very good so the first item on my list was bond is fake news yeah Uh, we've talked about that at length but i just thought i'd mention that the next thing is uh brosnan is really hitting his stride in this movie i think like like he he, he's great in goldeneye he really hits the ground running but i just feel like he just just tweaks a few things like you know tunes everything up tightens everything up a bit and he's just really james bond in this movie and you know how i was saying last week how i really loved his hair in golden eye and he kind of mm. cuts it whatever he does in this movie is like really awesome i maybe the cutting i'm remembering <laughs> from die another day but he looks great in this movie he it's looks less shaggy he was a bit shaggier in golden eye yeah, he looks so good. And that scene after the bike, which I didn't put on my list, but maybe you did, the bike chase through uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. Mm. It's referred to as both, I think. And he's showering with Michelle Yeoh and he's got his shirt off. And I'm like, well, hello, Pierce. I forgot about this scene. <laughs> 
I remember really enjoying the scene where you and Michelle Yeoh were kind of washing each other. <laughs> and it's very interesting too, because he's got his shirt off, but she doesn't. Well, no, she has, she does because she, and I noticed this because they get caught after they've been diving on the Devonshire, which is the ship that got sunk off course. It was redirected. Just as an aside, I do like the fact that the whole way this movie kind of turns on the fact that this encoder device is able to be used by uh, Gupta to manipulate the global positioning satellites that they have to refer to. (laughs) (laughs) The GPS system, they're global positioning satellites uh, and direct them off course. It's essentially, remember when Apple Maps first came out and kept sending people off? (laughs) Basically the plot device for this film is like dodgy Apple Maps. (laughs) But they, they go diving on the, or Bond goes diving. He gets a halo jump into the water, straight onto the ship. Scuba meets Michelle Yeoh down there because fancy meeting you here. The ship starts collapsing around them. They get back up to the surface and then there's Stamper ready to grab them. And so they get taken to Elliot Carver by helicopter and he's been put in what looks like sort of fisherman sort of clothing, like a fairly loose blue shirt and some loose pants. But she's put in this really cute denim jeans, little cute crop top and a red shirt yeah. I don't know how they got that out of a fishing boat, but they did. So, yeah, so she's in, like, a little cute crop top. So they shower. She loses the red shirt somewhere, and then she steals another shirt as she walks off. She just steals it. Yeah, just takes it. She says, I work alone, handcuffs Bond to the pipe, walks away, steals a shirt, leaves. Respect. I do like that Bond's solution to that is to rip the pipe out of the wall. That was quite... <laughs> That was very good. That was just a nice little touch. I didn't know. I quite like that. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, Brosnan kind of hitting his stride in this. I quite liked him. I, I thought I remember him being more checked out than this. And I think that's in the next two movies is he sort of definitely starts to not be quite as present as he is in this movie because <laughs> he's. <laughs> He showed up. He showed up to this one. He's, it's, it's very, very good. I like him a lot. Yeah. Um, I had uh, Secret Stealth Boat. Yep. Blonde German henchman. Yeah. And Carver is classic Bond villain. He is. All of which we've, we've touched on. I said uh, Michelle Yeoh is great but kind of wasted in this movie. Okay. Um, she is an incredible action star. And, and at this point, I don't think, was it, this wasn't post-Crouching Tiger, was it? Or no, it was, was before. It? Crouching Tiger, I think, was 2000 or 99. Uh, no, it was, it was 2000. 2000. Okay. So this is pre pre Crouching Tiger, which was a phenomenon at the time. So so mm-hmm. she was cast almost entirely on her Hong Kong action films that she had done. And if you've ever seen any of her work, like she is really really good. And the thing about Michelle Yeoh is that she a lot of the female actresses in Hong Kong action films that they, they were very they were very good stunt women, but they, they tended to do quite feminine stunts and things like that, and they tended to be in quite feminine situations. Whereas Michelle Yeoh was very masculine in the stunts that she was doing, like she was mm. throwing herself off buildings and punching guys and and really engaging one-on-one she was quite a singular figure in that whole scene and so she was the obvious choice obviously to to make the crossover and become a bond girl but then they don't really use those skills except for one scene yeah she kicks a whole bunch of ass well i was going to say what what they did and what what it was very obvious was that happened is that they just got a Hong Kong stunt crew to <laughs> come up with an action sequence, which is exactly what that is. That That is a Hong Kong action sequence. That's a Jackie Chan style, Michelle yeah. Yeoh, like Hong Kong action movie sequence where they're, they're, they're running on things and, and jumping off things and using stuff they find in the room to like beat up on each other. That's pure Hong Kong action in the, in the mid it, to late night. This is like 
this is post the motorbike chase when she goes off. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, which, where she confronts all the all the the, the General goons Chang's right. goons. Yes, exactly. Like, like and that, that shows up right at the end to to hit a guy who's about to take her out. Yes, exactly. They have lovely banter in that scene. After they kill everyone, and then you know she reveal she basically does a little Q lab mini Q lab because they don't have Q in his lab at MI6 because no. he delivers the car in hand. She has her own Q lab, which is quite good. She has her own Q lab with like the tiger. What are they called? The welcoming tigers that you have out the front of doors. Yes. Are they lions? Yeah. They might be lions. But yeah, one of them shoots flame, and uh, a fan shoots darts, and he says, "I've always been a fan of Chinese technology." <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. And then there's but, this lovely scene where, like, he looks at her and, like, really admiringly, and then he's doing something else, and she looks at him admiringly, and, and then he says, uh, up to your left, and, like, a guy gets up, like, groggily from the ground, and she just hits something in, like, a like a boxing um, bag. Yes, yeah, some, something, like, bags. falls on him or, like, shoots out at him. <laughs> shoots out at him? Do you think that they have chemistry? Like, do you buy the fact that they slowly, like, fall in, you know, fall in love over the course of their adventure? Because it feels pretty clunky to me, Natalie. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's I feel just... like the Nata- Natalia Romanova, Semyonova, Natalia from Natalia from Goldeneye was more. That feels a, way more convincing. A bit more convincing. Uh, they have little to no chemistry on screen. Like, like I definitely believe that they have like a grudging respect for each other. This is what I mean. Yeah. Nothing in the way of sexual like attraction between the two of them. I and think... yet they are forced into these situations because it's a Bond film and it's just weird and awkward. I feel like there's definitely respect there. And he says to her, we'll finish this together. She says, if anything happens to me, this is where the minds are or detonators are. And he's like, we'll finish this together. And then he yells that out to her across the room when Carver's threatening to kill her. She's like, what are you waiting for? Just shoot him. He's like, no, we finish this together. Which clearly shows she's the more professional <laughs> spy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there's definitely respect there. I think that they play a few nice looks at each other. They play a bit of we're a team. And I think that it's a teamwork makes the dream work scenario. I love sure, the, yeah. I love the bike race where she keeps kind of twirling around him to sit behind him and then in front of him. And mm. uh, and he's and she's like, don't get any ideas. And he says, I wouldn't dream of it. There's a bit of flirtation there. Uh, <laughs> All the that stuff is good. Scene. Like I, I love that stuff. But the shower scene is kind of weird. And then at the end where they fall into an embrace and kiss, I do not buy it for a second. I did find it funny because I was like, well, they can both fit on that door. Um, <laughs> they can fit on the wreck. That's true. That I mean, you know, Stealth boat. Titanic. This is a very happy ending. Yes, exactly. But at, at the same time, it's like, let's stay undercover. The, the boat's looking for us. Let's stay undercover. No, you're literally in the middle of a sea on a bit of wreckage. And you're not going to get very far with your rumpy pumpy if everything starts sinking around you. <laughs> but sure. No, I take your point. It's not the most chemistry of any Bond duo. But I don't know if we get that again with any Brosnan. What would be your pick for the most characters? Charismatic Bond, Brosnan, someone else duo. Probably uh, Natalia from the from the previous movie. Because either that or Sophie Marceau, I think, does a good job, and she's the villain. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't rewatched that one yet, so I I, I remember not being particularly <laughs> buying into that one either. But but maybe maybe it'll win me over okay. on a rewatch. I just know that Die Another Day doesn't seem to have much chemistry with either 
of them. Oh, no, God, no. Like, the, the yeah, he and Halle Berry are not on the same level. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Not, not happening there. It's very, it's a very strange mm. setup. But, um, and uh, so to finish my list, uh, I had Terry Hatcher is also there. Because, I mean, you, mean to Terry you, Hatcher. You, you, were, you were being very, very nice to Terry Hatcher, and, and I, I like her a lot, but I don't think i think she was right that she possibly shouldn't have been in this movie <laughs> i don't understand why he has to kill her oh i get that i mean like he's a mega mega maniacal uh <laughs> you know what i mean that, that I word he's a psycho he is a psycho he's a psycho but, and and then he had a he was betrayed but, she, she betrayed me they had a love affair years before she married him so <laughs> Why? Well, he's definitely someone who doesn't uh, like to share his toys, and he also is someone who, you know, th- there's the the added sense that she lied to him and that that she was protecting Bond, and so therefore he's like, well, you know, you've betrayed me, and therefore you must die. And then he sends her to go visit him in his hotel room. Well, to to set up the to set up the double murder. Oh, okay, right. I need you to go to Bond's house. Reason with him. We know he's a spy because she yeah, says th- he's onto you. But yeah, like, like go and go and go and see if you can reason with him, and then you know secretly he tells his assassin to go kill them both. Yeah, it's a really interesting because M gives him. Oh no, M is given forty eight hours to get Bond to investigate before they send in the fleet. And they do their walk and talk rather as a drive and talk. So M <laughs> is yeah. in the car with Bond and Robinson, who Tom Salinsky mentioned last week is uh, Colin Salmon. Yeah. And Money Penny. And Money Penny in the front seat with a computer. <laughs> <laughs> but what I love is that M is just drinking. She's just, just drinking. Got, she's got this glass of spirits or whatever. Probably her bourbon, and uh, she's just in the car going, mm, "How much do you know about uh, Elliot Carver? Mm. Uh, you know his wife. Uh, pump her for information." <laughs> so they're doing that. They're like, "We're in a hurry. We're in a hurry." And he gets to Hamburg and goes straight to this party, and then he shags Paris like overnight. And then there's the whole the scene with the the car. And by the next afternoon, he's in the South China Sea doing a halo dive. It all well, happens very, very quickly. Yeah, exactly. But but it's, it's another it's another case of a Bond film having this ticket clock that they really don't refer back to very much like it's something exciting to say at the start of the film to sort of say oh well you know uh, you've only got 48 hours to to do this uh, and then they don't really reference it again because you've got to have all the bond stuff in there like he's got to seduce a, a pretty lady and and drink a martini and and have an action scene and if you've got a ticking clock you might not you might not be able to make a a, a classic bond film and so you just sort of well they do the ticking clock really well in the pre-credit sequence at the Russian arms bazaar in the no, it's a oh, yeah, terrorist yeah, that, arms bazaar. Yeah, which is which is great. Yeah, a terrorist arms <laughs> bazaar near the. Well, it's Russian like a farmer's school. market for for jihadists. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Bond is there sneaking up on it, and then hijacks a plane to fly it out of the way. So the missiles don't blow up, nuclear warheads or something. So they they have the British ship fire a missile towards this. It just says on the Russian border. Where is it? Where could it possibly be that the British ship would be close enough to send a missile? I know that missiles have long ranges, but which border? It just says Russian border. Russian border with what? (laughs) 
Well, Ooh. it's very true, and, and it has a little it has a little title card, and it's the most vague title card I think we've ever gotten in a Bond film. Yeah. <laughs> Just a, on the Russian border. What? It's a big country. Well, let me. Are you done with your list? Uh, very nearly. I, I, I just, okay. the only the only other thing I had was a remote control car, which was uh, very cool. Although having said that, they did ditch the Z3, which was a, a very good looking car, uh, and replace it with possibly the ugliest model of BMW I think the company ever made. Okay, I'm glad that wasn't just me. It is an ugly ass '90s style BMW. It is. It is just weird dad car that that I, Pierce Brosnan is driving. I don't remember it looking ugly at the time. I remember it looking fine at the time. Like that's what cars looked like. It has aged atrociously. <laughs> <laughs> so poorly. And, uh, Whereas yeah, the I Z3 could... hasn't. The Z3 is still a very sporty-looking car. Well, when you're going with sporty and zippy, fine. But th- they were going for they needed something that wasn't a convertible. They needed something that they could conceivably, you know, have goons hack at and not get into. And you can't have a convertible for that. But I just love that the, like the mid-'90s BMW range was just complete, just real boxy dad cars. No, yeah. that's, that's the only thing they made. <laughs> One might argue they still are. No, no, don't want to upset in case BMW want to sponsor. Um, (laughs) You're very welcome to sponsor BMW. We've got a few episodes left. Jump on board (laughs) before the Aston Martin comes back in Die Another Day. Yes. And and, and look, have the Aston Martin people want to throw some money our way? Yeah, if they could throw an Aston Martin. Yeah, if they could throw (laughs) us an Aston Martin, that would be great. That is my – I have very little interest in cars. They're fine. They're lots of fun, but essentially money pits. So just get a good car that will do me well and take me around the place and uh, hopefully be environmentally friendly as possible until I can work out a way of not having a car because I'm a terrible person who uses a car. But anyway, enough of the self-guilt. If I won the lotto and had a squajillion dollars, I would buy an Aston Martin. That's my that's my <laughs> splurge car. And then people say, well, would you buy the old style Aston Martin or would you buy a really fancy new one? I'm like, well, that's depending how much I won, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> like, of course, if I have the option to buy an old school DB5, then yeah, but I don't think there's that many around. So, yeah, I just buy a really cool Aston Martin. <laughs> it's the car that I would get. But, yeah, that BMW was not pretty. Very, very ugly car. Although it's the first time that we've really done, like, remote-controlled car, which seems like an idea that maybe should have been in a Bond film before this, but it's definitely um, very cool when they how he does it in this one. Isn't there autopilot somewhere in the Lotus doesn't have a... No, I suppose they don't. No, do I they? don't think so. No, yeah. they, they, they've never really done that before. Yeah. No, it's it's fun. And I particularly like the fact that the phone is an Ericsson. <laughs> yes. yes. It's an Ericsson phone. I know. It's, it's an Ericsson. And it was, uh, it's, rem- it's a type where you can flip it up and there's like there's stuff inside as well. Yeah. I remember them being – I remember it looking so high-tech and cool in the movies oh, yeah. in 97 because I think and by that Ericsson point, flip- my dad got a mobile phone in 95 because he was a marine pilot and so to be on call i think they used to have pages maybe but having mobile phones became you know very useful and he had this massive brick of a motorola i think (laughs) and then he got a smaller motorola still a brick but a smaller brick and i got this big brick thing where literally the buttons were all it looked like a handset like a cordless handset it was that size And my dad was like, well, you take this and take it to school with you. It's good safety, you know. And I would just leave it in my bag all day. Yeah. 
because who am I going to call? And this was still the time when if you had a mobile phone, you were a wanker. Yes. Like, oh, you got a mobile phone, aren't you? <laughs> you wanker. Like, so I just <laughs> hid it in my bag and never used it. And then I think the following year he upgraded again and I got his second brick for my first year of uni. Right. Which again just kind of left in my bag and it would run out of battery and sure. I couldn't charge it and, you know, and so on and so forth until I got a little, um, I think one of those little Nokias, you know, those ubiquitous, there were so many ubiquitous Nokias in the early oh, The 4210 or whatever it was. The... Something like that. Yeah. Various types of Nokias. And yeah, on and on it went until I think in 2010, I won a smartphone from Telstra on Twitter because I had, I had Motorola, I had a Razor by that point. Oh, wow. 2010, I had a Razor. Hey. Bright pink one. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I still miss the flip phone. I still miss it. It was cool. Mm. But uh, I won a smartphone and that was three years into the iPhone, I think. And I hadn't gotten into smartphones yet. And then before the 2012 election, which I covered, as you would recall, I bought I, myself. I, I remember that. Yes. You remember that? I bought myself an iPhone 4. Um, oh, which to, was to, to cover the election. To cover the election. Yeah, yeah. I bought myself one. So I knew it was because the Telstra one, I can't remember what brand it was. It might have been a Nokia, actually, like a Nokia smartphone or it was one of those other brands that was really good pre-smartphone, but still catching up. But then the arse immediately fell out of the market as soon as yeah. the iPhone showed up. I think it didn't even – it wasn't – it was like pre-Android, so it had like a operating system that was mm. – Microsoft, I think, Microsoft operating yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Interesting, kind of had a grid layout, like everything was in little squares. <laughs> but, yeah, then I got an iPhone to cover the election and never looked back, just mm-hmm. stuck with iPhones ever since. Sure. Covered the election on that little sucker, doing up boxes and recording interviews and cutting things on the phone and in, in 2012 yeah where, where it was uh the the height of cutting edge technology that you could do all that on your phone it was like a it was like a magic trick i mean it wouldn't be that much different now just you know a faster phone bigger chips no totally yeah like, but at the time it was science fiction it was just oh. Like, oh my god you can just turn this stuff around in like two seconds flat i felt like a goddamn hero stew i don't know if you remember those days I, but i would i, I would get fondly <laughs> would be because if, uh, if you're not aware, Stu would be back in the newsroom and I was on a bus somewhere in North Queensland or yes. God knows where and uh, we'd do a media conference in the morning. Remember I would have the station microphone that I'd have to hold up. Yeah, it wasn't connected to anything though. You it were wasn't literally connected. holding it up as a branding exercise. I had it plugged into a redundant plug in my um, high def audio recorder. So mm. I would I would hold up the mic because it had the branding of the station on it and that's the reason I got the news director to let me go on the bus because it meant that we could get the station branding on the news every mm-hmm. night yep. which hey i'll take it so i would hold that up plugged into a redundant plug on my hd recorder which would use its own microphones which were far better than the mic that if it connected through it would normally get like compression or something on it so i would just have that in shot for the prop and then i would record on both my phone and my hd recorder and then jump back on the bus cut like a grab or do a voice rap record it into the phone cut in a grab copy paste you know with my fingers record email it through to you and be like here's the text to go with it and done 
yeah, until the next hour, obviously. (laughs) Then I just sit on the bus on my computer, download the HD stuff, go in, chop, 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 chop. And these are all the skills audio editing that now serve me well editing this very podcast. That's it, exactly. It all comes full circle. But yeah, that was 2012. And, you know, it wouldn't be that much different now, just more apps, more options for recording. It would be a lot easier to do it now, I think. Yeah, probably even faster apps. But I felt like a goddamn superhero at that time. It can't be that much. Can't be that long ago. It's 2012, for God's sake. (laughs) It was was eight years ago. Oh, God. Time. (laughs) Why does it relentlessly march forward? It sure does. Anyway, what I wanted to bring up about this film, can I read you some of my research into this film? Because Tom Selinski alluded to it last week when we were discussing GoldenEye about how there was a lot of writing issues or scripting issues with this film. And I thought it might be worth going over some of them because it might be why some of the things that we've pointed out about this film don't quite work the way, you know, maybe had they been pulled together they might have been a bit different. So there was big pressure on this film because, of course, GoldenEye had been massive and MGM had a new owner, billionaire Kirk Kerkorian. I'm surprised they didn't just right. name, name the bad guy after him. But <laughs> what's his deal? Oh, no, he died in 2015, age 98. Okay. He was an American of Armenian origin. Also, Albert R. Broccoli had died. So he died after GoldenEye and you might have sure. seen this film was dedicated to his memory. So they had to really rush this film out. Its budget ended up being $110 million, which I guess by these days is probably still a blockbuster but pretty normal. They couldn't get Martin Campbell, who directed GoldenEye, to come back. He just didn't want to do two films in a role. So they got Roger Spottiswood and he came on. He had been offered to direct a Dalton Bond film but obviously didn't for whatever reason. I definitely noticed some directorial touches in this one that I hadn't seen before, namely the use of slow motion. Did you notice that, that there were all these like little slow-mo? There were in in very strange places too, where you think it's going to be something and then it just turns out to be nothing. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like they're trying to match the music to the film or something. So they'll have a shot of like Michelle Yeoh kind of getting up from the ground just slightly in slow-mo and then it cuts to the guy shooting her and he's normal speed. and yeah. When, when the ship is sinking at the start, the Devonshire, and they're yelling, abandon ship, abandon ship, and there's a little bit of a soft slow-mo kind flourish. of slow-mo flourish as these sailors try to run for their life. I think they're trying to do it for a bit of emphasis, you know, mm. on tragedy or danger, but it, it it was a weird thing that I noticed and not for a good reason. I was like, why are they doing this? <laughs> um, brief aside, speaking of the Devonshire in the first act, did you notice the presence of a now big blockbuster star? Yes. Who has sometimes been, or I, I believe actually was considered for Bond when Daniel Craig got it. Do you know of whom I'm speaking? I know exactly who you see. You good old, our, our good friend, Jerry Butler. Jerry Butler! <laughs> um, can you imagine? Imagine if he had gotten the Bond role. My God, the, the mean, trouser leg of time that that would have that would have created. He is Scottish, but that's the line that he has because I saw him in the credits and went, "Wait, I did not see Jared Butler in this," so I had to go back to find that scene. And he literally, I was like, "If he's credited, then he has to have had a line." That's how it works in Hollywood. So he turns around and at one point says, "The ship is sinking six feet to the stern." Like that's the worst Scottish yes. accent ever. I don't even know what that was. He, he does. He, he is extremely Scottish in this one, though. He he, he turns around. He's like Scotsman, yeah. Scotsman, Scotsman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know what that accent was. I feel I, I feel like I had a stroke when I was trying to do that accent. What I love is that he has actually gone on then to 
play uh, a Secret Service agent, uh, Mike Banning, in uh, the the, Olymp- the Has Fallen trilogy. Yes. Uh, Olympus has fallen, London has fallen, an angel has fallen. And isn't that uh, the one where he ha- he always has to do like ridiculous interviews where he says it's not James Bond, like it's not, it's you yeah, know, it's a very different yeah, yeah, yeah. character. Exactly. <laughs> so you know he he got there in the end. He, got he there did. The end. I could see him as as a Bond. Yeah, I mean definitely. I mean especially '97 Jared Butler mm. uh, or '95 Jared Butler before Brosnan was cast. He he would be a much harder. Read. He's more of a a Daniel Craig style blunt instrument. Yes. Um, uh, but you know I I could see him being Bond. That that, that could be a thing. Yeah, he's got magnetism. He's certainly very attractive. And I remember seeing Phantom of the Opera that movie. <laughs> Oh yes, he's badly miscast in that. But anyway, it's so badly miscast. But I still remember being like, he's really dishy, and <laughs> and and that's not a good thing that you want when your you know main character is supposed to be hideously maimed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Except that, of course, what they do is that eventually his maiming appears to be you know maybe just a shade more than a Harry Potter lightning scar. Like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, dude, you got a bad cat scratch. Why are you hiding under the Paris Opera House with a whole bunch of candles? <laughs> like, it does not justify this reaction, bro. Get over it. Come on. His masks get smaller and smaller until it's almost like an eye patch <laughs> on his left eye or something. And yeah. uh, he's like, I'm hideous. It's like, no, you're clearly Jared Butler. Also, your, <laughs> your buff is shit. Like, you can ignore a dodgy eye. I'm very shallow, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> You've got great abs. And who's, considering who's that, your eyes. Well, they had Patrick Wilson playing the other love interest, like the young, handsome Raul or whatever his name yes. is. Yeah, yeah. And I think Patrick Wilson is a fine actor in some stuff, but he seemed really badly cast there. Like he seemed really stiff and it's like they put a ponytail on him to make him look dashing. And I'm like, no, he just still looks like cardboard. He looks like cardboard. Why would you go off with him when Gerard Butler, okay, he's got some issues. But he's clearly more charismatic to be around. Like Patrick Wilson in that film looked like he would melt in the rain. That's that's what I'm saying to you, Stu. Cardboard. Look, you're not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Anyway, let me get back to reading about this film because it's very interesting. So this is the first film that had absolutely no reference to any Fleming material. Not even Goldeneye. Goldeneye was the name of Ian Fleming's uh, house oh, in Jamaica. So that, that sort of qualifies he, as the, the reference. Yeah, and he he named it after an Operation Goldeneye, I think, that happened during the war, after the war or something like that. So he had a reason for calling his house Goldeneye. And then, of course, the filmmakers and the writers took that as, you know, that's a cool name and it's connected to Fleming and we'll just invent a story for it. So Goldeneye is an invented story, but there's still a Fleming reference. This one, there's like no Fleming reference. Although I will say they've definitely taken elements of other Bond films. Like the fact that Carver uses a distraction to sneak attack missile, the the missile that he's going to launch on Beijing. Like he sinks a vessel and then steals it with scuba divers. Yeah. You know, that's that's very Thunderball-ish. And the whole plane... It's Thunderball and specifically... uh... Uh, for your eyes only. Oh, yeah, the tracking system. Yeah, yeah. The ATAC yeah, tracking your system eyes for only. ships. That's for your eyes only. And then the whole playing the countries off against each other is The Spy Who Loved Me. The Spy Who Loved Me, yeah, exactly. So there's DNA through all of that. And, of course, this film, despite that, comes in 10 minutes shorter than Thunderball. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be. Uh, I think it's more than 10 minutes, Natalie. I'm just Let me just check my notes here. Uh, yeah, no, no, Thunderball is a full 18 days long. Um, it's an incredibly <laughs> long movie. Yeah, it's like really We've starting. We've talked about it many times. You know, it's a very long movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, this um, one didn't feel as long, but I, I would have thought, but apparently only 10 minutes less. Really? Wow. Okay. That must be a mistake. It must be a mistake. Anyway, so, <laughs> so one of the original story treatments, there were a whole bunch of writers working on it, and I think Tom alluded to this. They had uh, John Cork, Richard Smith, and the novelist Donald E. Westlake. I don't know any of these people, but Westlake <laughs> wrote uh, story treatments in collaboration with Michael G. Wilson, the the producer and Broccoli's stepson, and they featured a villain who plans to destroy Hong Kong with explosives on the eve of the 1997 transfer of sovereignty to China because that's the other thing that happened in this year. Hong Kong went back to China. Yes, and hasn't that turned out well? Yeah, hasn't that been going really well in 2020? Like, <laughs> this is what I mean. There's so many weirdly connecting things that, anyway, I'm glad they didn't go with that because that would have really dated the franchise Look, not that this movie doesn't already date. I was about to say that this. There are several other things that date this movie. <laughs> true, that is true. But I'm kind of glad that they sort of ignored that and just kept China as you know a big local power. Well, also, you know, in, in a similar vein, obviously the the movie Rush Hour is all about. I think, or is it Rush Hour Two that's all about the the transfer of Hong Kong to um to China? Is it or is it Shanghai? Of, no, 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 no. It, it's either Rush Hour One or Two. I can't remember which one. I've not seen those ones. With Jackie Chan and uh, not Chris Rock. Chris Tucker. Uh, Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Yeah. Whatever happened to him? He's still he's still doing stuff. I assume. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happened was so January 1997, they're about to start filming and they're going to do this script about the Hong Kong handover. But of course, the handover is happening in the middle of the year, and this film is opening at the end of the year. And they're like, MGM said, you can't do that. And so they had to start from scratch. So, you know, filming is about to start. And apparently uh, Wilson has said, we didn't have a script that was ready to shoot on the first day of filming. While Pierce Brosnan said, we had a script that was not functioning in certain areas. (laughs) So they had Bruce Fierstein, who had worked on GoldenEye, wrote the initial script. And he was inspired by, apparently he'd been in in journalism. And uh, he wanted to, quote, write something that was grounded in a nightmare of reality. Right. And this is what came out. (laughs) So he passed his script to Roger Spottiswood, the director, who then got seven Hollywood screenwriters in London to brainstorm and eventually chose the writer Nicholas Meyer to perform rewrites. And there were also Dan Petrie Jr. and David Campbell Wilson did some more rewrites before Fierstein came back in for a final polish. So Fierstein has final sole writing credit in the film and the advertising, but uh, Raymond Benson, who wrote the novelization, credited the other writers as well. And Fierstein did base the character of Carver on Robert Maxwell, as I mentioned. Just before they started filming, apparently there were arguments between Spottiswood, the director, and the producers. The producers favoured the Dan Petrie Jr. version, whichever one that was, and then the director brought Fierstein back in to rewrite it two weeks before filming. Right. And then further rescripting was done because Jonathan Price and Terry Hatcher were not particularly happy with their roles. Sure. The title was inspired by the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm. The eventual title came about by accident. One of the potential titles was Tomorrow Never Lies, referring to the Tomorrow newspaper in the plot. And this was faxed to MGM. But through an error, this became Tomorrow Never Dies, a title which MGM found so attractive they insisted on using it. <laughs> and it's kind of, I mean, it, it does tie in because obviously the, the newspaper in the in the movie is called Tomorrow. Yes, but... which doesn't really make sense because surely a newspaper should be called Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Or well, that, at that, best. Was, that was Elliot Carver's uh, big, big innovation. Yeah, or at best today. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's never it's never tomorrow. <laughs> never tomorrow. tomorrow with newspapers. But it is fun, uh, particularly the way Em's like, "What do you know about uh, Elliot Carver?" And he goes, "Global media baron." Well, well, <laughs> like everyone it. knows that. I know exactly, but but it is it is a a throwback to the old uh, know it all Bonds, where you know yes. you ask Bond a subject, "What do you know about this Bond?" Oh yeah. well, nothing much, sir. Uh, blah 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 blah. Here's the Wikipedia entry on it. <laughs> So uh, I think that perhaps all of that stress on getting the writing done meant that you have some script elements that I really, I mean, I need to probably watch these films earlier and then really sit down and work out what the script elements problems Mm. are because I'm like, I mean, it all seemed to work out. It all seemed to kind of make sense. I mean, look, you know, it, it hangs together. As for what it is, which is a, a mid-tier Bond film. Yeah, and look, uh, maybe that's what Tom was referencing because the characters are not as strong. No. They whack in a bit more action, so there's a lot more action sequences than in Goldeneye. Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, but having said that, all, all the action sequences are quite engaging. Like you never get bored, yeah. or you never, you never like, oh, I, they've just thrown that in for the sake of it. They all follow on from one another, and that for the most part, face. yeah, that it's quite good. Face is genius. It's yeah. so clever. It's a little bit stagey when they start going over the balconies and stuff, like the, the verandas. Oh yeah, and uh, the, the balconies are being shot down behind, and them. They're, they're, they're all falling down. It, it kind of feels a little bit stagey at that point, but otherwise, like, like he mostly is, is a very good, a very good scene. I quite like it. And it was definitely a change up from a tank smashing through everything. Yes, time, exactly. There's a, there's a chopper kind of following them, them through these, you know, small streets of Saigon. The chopper is the blunt instrument that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the chopper is trying to uh, kill them in the most inefficient way possible and dangerous <laughs> by, for the for the helicopter. By killing everyone else first. <laughs> yes, turning itself into a giant spinning rotor. Uh, <laughs> but, like, that, that is not only the most inefficient way to kill them, but also incredibly dangerous to the people in the helicopter. Yeah, I know. Well, it was like that too on the stealth boat at the end where there's that massive machine gun fight. And I mean, one of the things that this made me think, and this is always Bond. Bond is never sort of out for his own preservation. He's always out to just get the job done. Mm. And generally it's the same with the henchman too, like Stamper. You know, look, everyone's dead now, Stamper. Just... No, but but I quite like that because it's personal for him. Yeah, because he killed Kaufman. Yeah, so so he, this is one of the yeah. rare examples of a henchman who actually has some some skin in the game. So I bought that. Like, like he hates Bond and he wants to kill him. Yes. And I bought that hook, line, and sinker. It's fantastic. And Bond, like, did throw a chakra torture device into his thigh or something. That's true. So, <laughs> but it is funny at the end there when he's, like, hanging onto Bond and Bond is stabbing him with a knife and he's just yeah. like, ah. <laughs> Doesn't worry me, bro. But the other thing about Stamper is that Carver treats him like shit. He really like, does. He's really nice, but he keep, every time Bond pops back up again, he's like, so much for German efficiency. Yeah, he's constantly <laughs> making like passive-aggressive remarks he's, about his effectiveness. He's so mean. He's like, what do I pay you for? Like, he's so such a shit. <laughs> Oh, goodness. But um, yes, but with that battle at the end and everyone's just machine gunning, like nobody's thinking, I might just try and get off the boat. Like Bond is just not going to get everyone. And then the way he kills Carver is so comically brutal. Yes, yeah, exactly. I had forgotten. I'd forgotten that he he literally holds him down until this drill can get to him. Yeah. Because of course you just run out of the way of the drill. It's not moving. It's back a cold-blooded murder. It's not yeah. like it's not like a ironic death. James Bond murders a man by using an industrial drill to grind him into a paste. Yes. 
And then does he say something like you? Does he have a news-based pun? No, no, no. It's actually a really lame line. He says, "You know what they say, Elliot? Give the people what they want." Oh yeah, that's just before he kills him. But then he doesn't say anything. No, no, he doesn't say anything afterwards. Mm. That, that's that's his that's his big hero line. And I'm like, it's, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, I, no. <laughs> and it's like I love it when there's like you forgot the first rule of mass media, Elliot. Yeah. It's like nobody calls it mass media unless you're a journo, like, or <laughs> a academic, really. Earlier when Bond is fighting off people at Carver's secret installation base at the top of his newspaper plant and he's fighting a few guys over the printing presses and then he's able to punch one of them into the printing press and of course you see yes. these papers being printed out sort of stopping because there's a glitch in the system which of course is a body which then spreads blood all over these papers and, and you know Pierce kind of adjusts himself and goes I'll print anything these days. Yeah which is a good line uh, and that should have been how he killed Carver. Yeah. Or, and well, I don't know something... how you square that with, with like the boat stuff. And obviously that's something that they struggle with, but surely for the ironic death of the media baron like you want to have yeah. him crushed by his own printing presses well there was that fun bit earlier when he's holding gupta hostage and carver's holding uh, michelle yo hostage mm. and carver's going on a big rant and bond is looking at and henchman you know trying to come up on him and then he shoots him and says sorry i just tuned out there for a minute elliot <laughs> and elliot goes touche it's like it's not really a touche like <laughs> uh, it's very fun. I guess that's one of the writing things that could you could be said is that Michelle Yeoh has to, even though she's very capable, she has to kind of be caught and trapped. We, we, we probably weren't there in the culture yet, but I wouldn't it be more interesting for Bond to be captured and she has to rescue him or something, you know? Well, like, yes, but of course it's a Bond film. Sure, sure, sure. But maybe Bond gets captured, but then he has to, they have to work together to free himself and stuff like that. You know, I, yeah. she, she's not captured for long, which I think is, is good. No, you know? no. And she's, she always gets out of it and then is a badass. Like that mm. bit where she's fighting and she's got, I think, two bullets left in her machine gun. Yeah. And she works out there are two guys in the corridor, but instead of jumping out and trying to shoot them, she shoots the gas canisters either side of them so that they're disorientated and, you know, collapse. Yeah, yeah. She's she's strategic. It's it's very cool. It's a very good character thing. Did you also notice that Bond gets a new gun? Ah, uh, yes, yes. He gets he gets a Walther, but it's a different type of Walther. It's a Walther P99. Yeah, and then he keeps that for a while, I think. He like does. For a, a few I, movies. This is a whole side of the Bond things that I just have not realised. We haven't really he... touched on the guns, have we? Like, like there's because he famously carries the PPK. Yeah, have we never mentioned it until now? <laughs> I think we well, mentioned it in Doctor No. We mentioned it in Doctor No because he wants yeah. to try and take his his Derringer Beretta. or Beretta. That's the one. <laughs> Derringer is that even a gun? I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's okay. a snub-nosed, snub-nosed gun. Right. Okay. He wants to take his Smith and Wesson and his Colt, <laughs> his Magnum thirty-seven, Colt forty-five. <laughs> I just don't know enough about guns. That last but one yes. is a malt liquor, but anyway, that's fine. Uh, which one? The Colt forty-five is actually a malt liquor, but. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could have fooled me. Um, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so in every film, Bond had carried a Walter PPK, except for Moonraker, in which he Didn't was not. carry a gun, I think. He didn't have a pistol. So Walter wanted to debut its new firearm in a Bond film because it had been one of its most visible endorsers. Sure. Yeah. 
and previously the P5 was introduced in Octopussy. Bond would use the P99 until Daniel Craig reverted to the PPK as 007 in Quantum of Solace in 2008, which when you think about it is a very strange time to change guns because that movie is a sequel to Casino Royale. Yeah, you, you would expect him to use it for Casino Royale, like, like yes. you go back to the classic. Yeah, but <laughs> at one point Pierce Brosnan, I think, because he's raiding the Chinese bag of tricks and taking a watch and takes a gun and goes, oh, I wanted Q to get me one of these. Hmm. And I think that's the new that's the new gun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, a, yeah, yeah. So that's it's like slightly new. thicker. It's not got that sort of pointy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got a, it's got a boxier design. It looks more like a Glock than the the Walther. The Walther's a bit more um than, than the PPK. Uh, I, lo- I love the way you, you you're talking about that as if I have any idea. <laughs> Or I, I know this purely from action movies. Like, I'm, oh, I'm okay. not a gun guy. But <laughs> the Glock is like your standard 9 millimeter pistol. Like That's the, like your the, police gun, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a police gun. And and it's, you know, standard sort of boxy looking semi-automatic pistol. And uh, the, the P99 looks very similar to that, I think. It doesn't have, it has a more boxy design. Like, the, the PPK is a bit slimmer, basically. And a little a little smaller. The other thing is, because with, with those kind of pistols, you don't get many shots, do you? Like, you get eight or something yeah i think well, in a, in a, it's i think it depends clip, on the magazine it? but what a was magazine that? or a clip same. oh both i think i'm, I'm not sure <laughs> like i, I said i'm not actually you, a gun guy we should get a gun person on <laughs> how does a gun work you got bits of a gun and you put the bits into the other bits all i know about guns is that they're not there's that whole movie cliche of guns that just keep firing like just endless bullets and that's not yes. the case no but you, you sometimes see bond changing magazines Sometimes, sometimes yeah, not. Bond movies very much work on the premise that there are as many bullets as you need for a particular scene until it's narratively interesting for there not to be any more bullets. Yes, that's right. You need the stakes to be uh, lifted a little bit. So yeah. out of bullets, find another gun. <laughs> because in this one, I think he loses the gun, but then pulls another one out of his car, out of the BMW. So yeah, which actually, I mean, does that introduce? No, that that doesn't introduce. He gets the P ninety nine later. Yeah. Yeah. In Ho Chi Minh City. In Ho Chi Minh, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the music. Because... Oh yes, okay, yeah, yeah. We, we, we're well, obviously the the theme song is. What's your thoughts? Um, I like I like it. I like it probably more than I did at the time. I think I, I wasn't a big fan. I haven't been a big fan of it for a little while, and just watching it now, um, I was like, that's it's a fine song. I I don't think it would make my top five Bond themes. No, um, but it's it's much better than I remember. I think it'd be interesting to hear someone other than Cheryl Crow sing it. Yeah, but- Cheryl Crow feels like a weird fit for the song. Like you want a big like Shirley Bassey type to sing this song and instead but, you get sort of Cheryl Crow who's more well, of a Well, that pruner. was her song because what happened was they had a different composer. So, and Tom mentioned this last week, they got David Arnold to come in. They were trying to talk to John Barry, but they couldn't agree on a fee because he probably wanted, you know, a lot more money. And so Barry recommended this guy, David Arnold. He had done some successful cover interpretations in a project called Shaken and Stirred, which featured major artists performing the former James Bond title songs in new arrangements. So he had used a lot of techno music to kind of mix up the Bond sound. Sure, yeah. And he then brought in the propeller heads to do the music for the um, car chase sequence. Right, okay. Yeah, so that's the propeller heads in there. So he was supposed to write the theme song, and then MGM wanted a more popular artist. So they invited various singers to write songs, 
and um, picked one up through a competitive process. So there were around 12 submissions, including songs from St. Etienne, not really sure, Swan Lee, not really sure who that is, Mark Almond, I feel like I've heard that name but don't really know, Pulp, Mm, and Sheryl Crow. And they chose Sheryl Crow's for the main titles. Now, what happened to Arnold's song? So Arnold's song was called Surrender and it was used for the end titles. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's the, it's sung by Katie Lang. Okay, so that was going to be my next question. Do you know who that was? Because I was listening to it this time going, who is singing this? Because this is such a big, bombastic, you know, a real Bond-style voice, like, tomorrow never die, surrender. I was like, who is that? And then, of course, the titles came up and it said Katie Lang. And I went, what? How did I miss that? And to be honest, like I, I think I like that song better than the Sheryl Crow uh, yeah, opera. Yeah, because it also uses the motifs from the film. So it yeah. kind of captures you with that more sort of bombastic score line through it. Yeah, and she just sings that she's got such a big Bond suitable voice. And she was really popular then, so I'm surprised they didn't go with her. But she's still there on the, on the end credits, and it's the first time that a Bond song, two different versions, are used for the movie. Yeah, it's not the first time they've used a different song over the end credits, but it's always been just some other random song that they've put in there. Oh, yes. So it was the fourth Bond film to have a different opening and closing song. There right. you go. And then also Moby created his remake of the James Bond theme. Do you remember that? Oh, okay. Because this is when Moby is really big too. Yeah. Remember Moby? That play album? That was brilliant. That was so great. <laughs> and now he's like a weird, creepy dude. But I mean, he was always a weird, creepy dude. It is what it is. Oh, no, Play was 1999. Okay, well, look, same diff. So <laughs> Pop, their song they retitled Tomorrow Never Lies, like the original film was supposed to be called. Sure. And they put it as a B-side uh, on one of their singles. So, yeah. And Cheryl Crow was nominated for a Golden Globe and a Grammy for her song. So cool. that helped. <laughs> Now, the film opened at number two in the US, made $25 million on its opening weekend, I guess. And then overall worldwide gross was $330 million. So still really good. But yeah, it did Goldeneye really well, had, not quite as good as Goldeneye. Yeah, because it did three fifty. So still, when you're up against Thai freaking Tannic, <laughs> I still think that's really good. Rotten Tomatoes review sits at 58%. Yeah. Yeah, approval. But Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars at the time. He described the villain as slightly more contemporary and plausible than usual, (laughs) bringing some subtler than usual satire into the film. What are you on, Roger Ebert? Jonathan Price is being subtle? There is nothing subtle about that performance. It is it is munching on scenery. Apparently, opinions are being revised when it comes to this film, and people are saying that it was quite prescient in its way. Mm, um, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you know, certainly re-watching it, I went in thinking that this is the start of the shit Brosnans. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot, a lot of fun to be had in this one. And if you're just after just a James Bondy James Bond, this is an extremely James Bondy James Bond movie. Yes. But I think the idea of media manipulation and fake news and there is a seed that starts to grow out of that. So they were doing something interesting with the time. It just so happened to be on the cusp where we look back now and go, oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> So I guess um, we're moving towards the end of our podcast on this film. Sure. Do you have an idea? Because I, of course, don't. 
where you would rank it, Stu, in our list of rankings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I, I like I said, I watched the film and I had a lot of, I actually did have a lot of fun watching it. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's not a perfect film and it's not sort of top five Bond movies, but it's not bad. It's it's not a bad movie. And I, I, I kind of looked at my list and I, I just did the thing where you just sort of start at the top and work your way down. And I got down to the two Daltons. So my, my Daltons are right next to each other. I've got License to Kill and then The Living Daylights at nine and ten. And I sort of hit that point and I'm like, I, I like this movie better than For Your Eyes Only. I think this is a this is an extremely good, just middle of the road Bond film. There, there are things about it I really love. There are things about it that are very dumb. And there are things about it that just sort of clank and don't make sense. I really liked both of the Timothy Dalton Bond movies. Mm. I was very tepid on For Your Eyes Only, so I think it probably has to slot in at my number 11 spot. So just outside the top 10, so just below The Living Daylights for me. Okay, that's really interesting. I feel like mine is kind of in the similar area. Sure. <laughs> in that middle section. But again, it's, it's I'm It's a like, very middle of the road Bond film. It is, but do I like it more than Live and Let Die, which is kind of where, because I've got Moonraker, oh. Living Daylights, License to Kill, Live and Let Die. Like, I think I like this movie more than License to Kill, but is it a better movie than License to Kill? Is it a better movie than Live and Let Die? One could argue, but would I watch it over Live and Let Die? This is this is where I get very, very confused because the, the more I put stuff ahead of Live and Let Die is the more I put stuff ahead of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, again, yeah. I just, I don't watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's but true. But then Thunderball I've got after that, and I do watch Thunderball. Do you? Where do you find the time? <laughs> I have to put in for leave. I, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah take time off. Set a fortnight in a bit. I take it in chunks. I kind of watch, you know, like three days at a time. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm really struggling with this one, but I think I'm going to put it into, because I don't want to burn, I don't know where the next couple are going to go, and I don't want to burn, you know, live and let die all the way down to the... You can't be thinking ahead, Nat. You've got to be thinking of yes, in the now. Yes, I know. You're right. You're right. You're Tomorrow so never right. dies, but you'd have to make a decision today. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> do I like it more than License to Kill? Do I think it's a better film than License to Kill? I think it's more of a Bond film than License to Kill. I think well, I'm gonna... That's definitely true. That, that's definitely true. It's it's way more of it's it's a classic almost by the numbers Bond film. Okay, I'm going to. I feel weirdly loyal to Tim, to Timothy Dalton. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to split As well, up. You should. Okay, I'm going to put it after License to Kill and before Live and Let Die. I even feel wrong doing that, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Fair I enough. just need so to where, make. Where, where does that put it in your list? Tenth position. Right. Okay. So so I've I've put it in eleventh. Okay. So, so yeah. Again, we're very similar. <laughs> I think we're very similar, except that you've got On Her Majesty's Secret Service higher than I have, and that's the difference yeah, I, there. Majesty's Secret Service is uh, my seventh place at the moment. Yeah, and it keeps going down in my list. I keep yeah. putting things above that. And look, it's fair. Like, like OHMSS is, is much maligned and unfairly so, but it is still, you know, one of the lesser bonds. It's one of those ones, I think, anyway. I, I yeah. think, and, and the further we get from our watch of it, the less I think about it, <laughs> which is probably not great uh, yeah, considering. exactly. Like, and this is what's happening to me. I'm like, did I do the right thing by putting License to Kill so far up? Did I really actually love it that much? I don't know. <laughs> and now the Brosnan's here and I'm like, ah! So, yeah, all right. Well, I'll put it after License to Kill 
and so help me God, <laughs> see how the chips fall. Well, any further thoughts or final thoughts on uh, this film? Just to reiterate that, um, like, I liked it way more than I thought I was going to. I thought I was the, I was in for a slog, and it was a very fun and enjoyable movie. That's always a pleasant thing. I found it flew by, and like in a good way. Like it was just yeah, totally not perfect, but it. It bamboozled me, I, I guess, enough with the silliness to make me forgive a lot. Mm, um, absolutely. I'm probably being too generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time we move to 1999, a stellar year for cinema in general. Oh, yes. And we will see how the Bond film The World Is Not Enough stacks up. Returning Pierce Brosnan for his third outing. Will it be his Goldfinger? Here's The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> His non-existent Timothy Dalton film. Something tells me no. <laughs> well, until then, um, Disco Stew is where you can find Stuart Late on Twitter. I am at Girl Clumsy. Um, please check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash girlclumsy. Thank you to all of my Patreon subscribers who are helping me get all this work done. There is, I know I sound slack, but there's a lot of work that I'm putting into these Bond recaps and editing and writing, so thank you very much for helping me do that. You can follow on Facebook, facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne. It's uh, still the Game of Thrones throwback there. And, uh, of course, if you check nataliebehensky.com, God, I feel lame throwing all these things down, but you got to. You've got to. you got to. you got to you do just it. Got to. is where you can find all of the recaps that go with these podcasts and links to everything. And, uh, yeah, that's that's the plugging. That's the pluggables. <laughs> I guess all we can say now is, until next week, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. <laughs>